appreciate the fact that someone told you that when I get excited, I spit on the front row. Obviously, I wanted to move to the back. I don't know if it's been announced to anyone's hearing what we're going to pursue in the course of the next weeks till the holidays come. But it was our intention to address the book of Daniel. Now, uh, Daniel is approached for a lot of reasons. The two basic reasons is, first of all, someone simply wants to study a book of the Bible, and secondly, because there is a particular interest in prophecy. Uh, so before we begin the book, let me take you to John 13 and 14, read a couple of verses, uh, perhaps to alleviate some fears that maybe exist and to clarify for others the purpose of the study of prophecy. Prophecy is not written so that uh, uh, romantic prognosticators like myself can make wild speculations about what God's going to do in the future. The purpose of God giving prophecy is to give a seal to what He's written, the proof that He wrote it. John 13 and verse 19, for example, Now I tell you before it comes, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am He. So one of the purposes of prophecy is to evidence the fact that Jesus is who He said He was because what He said He would do happens. Chapter 14 and verse 29. And now I have told you before it has come to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. It is the purpose of God by prophecy to confirm the faith of those who do believe that gospel. You've observed, no doubt, that God never works miracles to make believers. God never does anything supernatural to make a believer out of an unbeliever. But the supernatural and the prophetic word and all that has to do with the uniqueness of God's ability to display His power is always there in order to confirm the faith of those who have believed. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 2, I don't want to get too far afield with it, but Hebrews chapter 2 emphasizes that that God sends signs following to confirm the faith of the people of God. Now come with me please to 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. Since we're going to address something, oh and by the way, let me say I do appreciate dialogue, and so if I run past something that's important to emphasize, or if I confuse the matter which I want to do, then would you please stop me, and I'll try to clarify. If I can't clarify it, maybe some of these other scholars around here can clarify it. It takes all the members of the body, you understand. Something needs to be said about the order of God's prophetic scheme. I hope we all understand that God did not wind up this whole work of redemption like an alarm clock and set it on a shelf, and now He's waiting for it to run down. As a matter of fact, we use the term. I'm always afraid of too many bunny paths, but let me stick this in. We use the term, if the Lord tarry. I hope we're all here convinced that Jesus Christ is coming again. Yes? We use the term, if the Lord tarry. Well, the fact of the matter is, He won't. As a matter of fact, the prophet Hosea said, Though it tarry, wait for it, for it will come, it will not tarry. By our appearance, it may be seen to tarrying. But in terms of the purpose of God, nothing is tarrying. For Acts chapter 17, Paul's message to the Greeks on Mars Hill, God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge all men by that man whom he hath ordained. So God already on his calendar, if you please, as Paul said, I speak as a man, on his calendar, he has a, a date circled, and when that date comes, he's going to turn to the sun and say, now's the time, go. We also recognize that even the sun has not been made privy to that date. Jesus said, no man knows the day nor the hour of the coming of the Son of Man, 
not the angels, no, not the Son, but the Father only. And so his anticipation is growing, just as our anticipation is growing, as God begins to do those marvelous things in the earth that give evidence to the fact that the coming of the Lord draweth not. And since I've come that far with this, let me add this one other thing. God does not give to the mind of unbelief signs with regard to His coming. He gives one sign to an unbelieving world. Somebody tell me what that is. Jonah. Sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah, uh, I better quote the whole thing. Uh, John, uh, John, first uh, gospel. Uh, Matthew, we got him there. Yes. Matthew chapter 12. Uh, uh, the wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. The church of Jesus Christ is not a wicked and adulterous generation in the sight of God is a virgin bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So do not confuse that. Jesus said the wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And there shall be no sign given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, even so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, when the world will embrace that sign, when the unbeliever will embrace that sign, put his faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then God will give him all kinds of signs. But until he is willing to embrace that sign, there will be no sign given to him, neither will there be any comprehension given to him, for the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are discerned by the Spirit. I've been accused of speaking fast. You all forgive that. I'm already reaching Nia back there, I think. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, when the bunny pads come up, you know, you got to get through them so you can get to the lesson. That's the, that's the intent. So that Jesus is saying to us very simply, I'm going to give a lot of indications to my people as to what I'm doing in the earth. In the words of the prophet Amos, the Lord will do nothing except He reveals it to His servants, the prophets. So Jesus says to the disciples, I have not called you servants, for a servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. Therefore, I've called you friends. What's the purpose? Because the Lord wants us to know what He's doing in the earth. We have that kind of relationship and intimacy with Him. Thus, when you come to Matthew chapter 24, for example, He begins to roll out the signs with regard to the end time and begins to indicate certain events which will come to pass in the last days. And Luke's Gospel puts it this way, When you see these things begin to come to pass, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. Now, if there was no intent in those signs, and if we were not to read the signs of the times, then such a statement, of course, is absurd. So obviously he does. Did I ever take you to 2 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 10? Now, the subject matter here is a bit different than where we're going, but there's a simple verse, and God never says just one thing. We all understand that. There's a simple verse here, if I could pick it up from verse 30, which will help us, I think, set down an outline of what we want to pursue in the future. For I by grace, if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whether ye do whatever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now verse 32 we're at. Give no offense neither to Jew nor to Gentile or Greek, literally, nor to the church of God. Now those are the three categories of redeemed from the earth. Now we kind of get the impression from time to time that the church of Jesus Christ is all that God is doing. <coughs> Everybody's in the church. Uh, Adam's in the church. Uh, Noah's in the church. 
uh, Enoch's in the church, uh, David's in the church, and so forth. And then, when, of course, we come finally to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is in the church, and then the disciples are in the church, and so forth. We kind of get the impression, in a general approach to the Scripture, that the church constitutes everybody who is redeemed. Not so. There are three categories of the redeemed. Jew, Gentile, and church of God. Jesus, uh, how far afield do I get here? How, how much do I get to go afield, Landon, the first time? Makes everybody nervous. John chapter uh, 14. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many abiding abiding place. You are such good in my father's house, the Greek word is meno. It isn't mansion. He's not talking about a house. The word meno is to abide. It's not a motel either. It's a permanent dwelling. Do I have that right, Greek professor? Jesus is not talking about a big, beautiful mansion that he's building us up there. Now, I will not for one moment deprecate the fact that we're going to have a big, beautiful place to live in when we get there. That's not the point. This is not what he's addressing here. What he is addressing here is that in the economy of redemption, there are different places of the redeemed. So Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions or abiding places, and I go to prepare a place for you. That is the church. So there is in the, uh, uh, how shall I say, uh, preparations of God for the redeemed, a place for Israel, a place for Gentiles, and a place for the church. Do you follow that? Let me ask you this parenthetical question. You only get in the church by being born again. Is that correct? Hello? Is that friend this theology art? You gotta be born again to be in the church. The church is the body of Christ. You don't have a body without the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And you and unless you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, you're not part of the church. How about babies that die? They haven't received Christ, so they haven't been by the Spirit placed in the body of Christ. That's how you get in the body of Christ, receiving Christ as Savior and Lord. Yes? They haven't done that, so they're not in the body of Christ. But are there redeemed babies? So where are they? So God has abiding places. Places prepared for these various segments to redeem. Now let me break this down a little farther. And again, if I cause more confusion, please help me. Um, You're familiar with uh, what's called the tetragram, the uh, name of Jehovah translated in all caps in the uh, King James Lord, uh, Jehovah or Yahweh, whichever way you prefer to pronounce it. God, first of all, having created the earth and placing man in it, separated the nations. He's made of all men one blood under the earth, and he set the bounds of their habitation. God is the separator of the nations. When you come into the new heaven and new earth, National distinction is still there even in eternity. Revelation chapter 22, because that was the purpose of God at the outset. More about that another time. So God separated the nations. Now God by nature is Father. The thing that characterizes fathers is they have children. So God wants children. He doesn't obtain children by creating them. And I might point out right here that Adam in the Word of God is never referred to as the Son of God. It is so translated in the King James in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, but you'll notice the son of is in italics in each case. Simply came of. And when Adam came as a creation from the hand of God, 
God created him, breathed into him the breath of life so that Adam could become a living soul in order that through his work in Adam, God might make for himself through birth sons. That's why we're born again. Hello? There's more to that that we cannot take time to address right now. And so what does God the Father do? He looks out over the nations, and out of the nations He chooses for Himself a wife called Israel. And throughout the Old Testament Scripture, Israel is spoken to as the wife of Jehovah. I have become, God said through the prophet Isaiah twice, a husband unto you. The whole theme of the book of the prophet Hosea is God restoring that adulterous wife that's put away. More about that at another time. So God took to Himself a wife out of the nations called Israel. Through Israel He begat a son. The marvelous prophecy of Genesis 3.15, which by the way is the first prophecy in the Word of God concerning the coming of Messiah. The seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. He's not saying by woman Mary. He's talking about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel becomes that woman through whom God is going to bring forth that redemption. Revelation 12, as a matter of fact, addressing the woman clothed with the sun, stars in her head, moon under her feet. The description of Israel, which is given in the dream of Joseph, which is interpreted to his family and his father hearing Joseph. Now I'm running past you. How many of you are here? How many are you? Oh. Alright, I got a lot of you. You remember Joseph dreamed a dream and he dreamed that the sun and the moon and the stars bowed before him. And he told his father about that dream and his father said, What is this that thou hast dreamed? Shall indeed your father and your mother and your brethren bow before you? That's Jacob. Hello? That's right. And all of the twelve or eleven sons left after Joseph bowing before him. What did he understand that dream to mean? The whole house of Israel. Well, that whole description is transferred, Revelation chapter 12, and the woman clothed with the sun. There are two prominent figures in the Old Testament of women. One of them is the source of redemption, the nation of Israel. The other is the counterfeit of redemption begotten by Satan called Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abomination of the earth. The woman, that woman, is wickedness. So these contrasts are brought in that great conflict that's gone on from day one between God and Satan. And as God manifests or reveals a work of redemption, Satan comes along on the other side and makes manifest the counterfeit of redemption in order to bring disrepute upon the real thing. That, by the way, since I'm here, I'll mention it. That's why every ethnic origin in the world has a legend of a Madonna and child. Everyone. What's the reason for that? Satan is throwing out all of the counterfeits so that when the real one comes along, everybody will say, here's one more. You know, the sweet thing about that is Jesus said, all that ever came before me were thieves and robbers and the sheep didn't hear them. But He said, my sheep hear my voice. Isn't it marvelous? That gracious work of the Spirit of God so that when the truth comes on the scene, the Spirit of God gives quickening and understanding. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God so that the truth is perceived by that believing heart. Marvelous thing God does. Alright. So God takes to Himself a wife, Israel, out of all of the nations and through that wife begets a son 
named Jesus. Now, for Jesus, God is looking back to the Gentiles and He is, according to the book of Acts, calling out of the Gentiles a people for His name. Is that how you spell bride? All right. Called the bride of Christ. So Ephesians chapter 5, and so you go with it. So that Israel is then the wife of Jehovah and the church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ. You never confuse these two. Remember Jesus said, not one jot or tittle of the law fails <coughs> until all be fulfilled. Remember that Jesus draws analogies as does the Apostle Paul, analogies from that law to illustrate truths in the New Testament Scripture. One such law I think most interesting in this regard that the law totally disallowed that the father-in-law should lift the skirt of the daughter-in-law. That, God said, is confusion. The same is true in the work of redemption. There can never be a suggestion of cohabitation between the father and the bride of the son, nor between the mother, Jerusalem which is above is the mother of us all, Galatians chapter 5, hello, y'all still here? Did I catch any of you? Uh, so there can be no confusion between the wife and the son of the father. God said it's an abomination. So the scripture makes a distinction between Israel, the wife of Jehovah, and the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. Now, no, is everybody with me so far? Do I need to clarify yet further? Okay, that's two of those that we've just noted. Give no offense to anyone, not to Jew or Gentile or church of God. Now, what about Gentile? How do you get into the church again? You have to be born again. By one spirit, you all baptized into one body. All right, you get in the church of Jesus Christ when that baptism took place. And that baptism took place. Can't uh, talk and. No, I won't say it. Robbie would have said I can't spell anyhow, but I really can't talk and spell either. The church had its birth or beginning on the day of Pentecost. Once again, let me repeat. You don't have a body without a baptism. By one spirit, you all baptize in one body. And you don't have a baptism until the day of Pentecost. Jesus standing up that great day of the feast, John chapter 7. And if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, that they that believed on him were about to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, for that Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out. On Acts chapter 1, Jesus prophesied, telling the disciples to remain in Jerusalem. In Luke 24, you remember? He prophesied of the outpouring of that Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The world had never experienced that before. The people of God have never experienced that before. So it has its beginning on the day of Pentecost, and this is the point of the birth of the church, which is the body of Christ, the church which is His body. Now, in order to be in the church then, you must be found in that body of believers between Pentecost and the translation. Another word used uh, to describe the translation is the word rapture. Some people object to that. Should I give my little lesson here? You know, I've told many of you. I should, all right. I told many of you that I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew. A little Greek runs a restaurant, a little Hebrew runs a clothing store. I just read the books. Now, this word has been object to saying that it's not in the King James. 
or it's not in the Bible, I should say. Well, the fact of the matter is it is in the Bible. It simply is not translated that way. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so, so shall we ever be with the Lord, addressing that translation of the saints. The Greek word that's translated <coughs> caught up is this word. Uh, you go that spelling all right there, uh, Doc? Close enough. Okay. Is the Greek word is arpazo. Now, if if we come on a word in translating a language that either we object to the meaning of, or else we don't know what it means, how do we usually handle that? We do a thing called transliterate. Example. When the King James translation was being set forth, infant baptism was still being practiced pretty well generally. They come on a word, immersed. The Greek word, baptizo. Well now, if we're practicing sprinkling, and this word says immerse, how do I handle that? Transliterate it. Fix it so the word's there, but nobody knows what it means. And so rather than translating it, immerse, they transliterate it <coughs> baptize. And we end up thinking that baptize means throw a little water on somebody. Am I meddling? Y'all forgive me. <laughs> so this same thing was done with the word arpazo when it went into the Latin Vulgate. You understand that that uh, the translators of Latin Vulgate had a whole different eschatological view than the Scripture did. And so in order to handle that word rightly so that it didn't uh, bug their theology, if you would, they did this with it. I got about lost the rat. Oh, there he is. Lost the Latin word. They transliterated it into the Vulgate, rapio. Now, this word means to be caught away or for something to be taken away from something. The word rapio in the Latin was intended to mean something taken away from something. So it was transliterated from the Greek to the Latin. Now, if we're going to bring that over into the English, we do the same thing. So our word rapine comes from this word. So now we're going to talk about the catching away of the church. And what do we call it? Rapture. It's all found in these same words. And that's the word that's translated caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4. So the fact of the matter is, the word rapture is in the Scripture. It is not so plainly evident through the King James. That's all free. I throw that out for nothing. So the translation, or the rapture of the church, is the end of the church age. So everyone that's born of the Spirit, between Pentecost and that translation, is in the church which is his body. Now that leaves a whole bunch of people before Pentecost and after the translation of the church to be reckoned with. Still looking at the other two groups. Before Pentecost, you have such men, for example, as Abraham... Isaac, Jacob, John the Baptist. By the way, John the Baptist can't be in the church. He said he was the friend of the bridegroom. Is that right? He said, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Obviously, the bride's the church. Jesus is the one that has the bride. He said, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom therefore stands by. They were asking John who he was. 
And he said, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Hey, if we brought that into English vernacular, we would say, I'm the best man. Since I'm here, you have a perfect Oriental wedding for the church. I'll have occasion in some days in the future to repeat this, but repetition, price of knowledge, store your pure minds by way of remembrance. You've got to have a best man. You have to have a father of the bride. You have to have a bride. You've got to have a bridegroom. Hello? And you have to have somebody to get the bride Yes? That's right. The father of the bride is Jehovah. The mother of the... I'm sorry, the father of the bride. He's the father of the bride, too, for that matter. Uh, what's the fellow's name I mentioned a moment ago? Abraham married his half-sister. Remember that? That's another subject in the time that I'm writing. That's very important. Um, what was I? I was father of the bride, yes. The father of the bride is Jehovah. The father of the bridegroom is Jehovah. The mother of the bridegroom is Israel. And we're setting up the wedding, you understand. The bride is the church. John the Baptist is best man to the bridegroom. The whole family and friends are there. That is the whole nation of Israel and all of the redeemed Gentiles who are not in the church, which we hope to talk about sometime tonight. And then somebody to give the bride away. The Apostle Paul. Paul said, I've espoused you to one virgin that I might, uh, to uh, uh, one uh, bridegroom that I might present you a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, I think that's a privilege that Paul deserves. Don't you? I mean, after all, he did go through somewhat of a difficulty in order to see this foundation laid and this marvelous structure built up. Uh, the uh, fault for which, to a great extent, lies in his lap. Yes? Uh, God, God gave to the Apostle Paul the revelation of the structure of the body of the church. Yes, ma'am. How can you give the bride away when he is part of the bride? Well, that's just a unique privilege that God's going to give him. When this thing comes in, he's going to be walking in the head of it and he's going to present it to the Lord. I'll have to be there to see how that's done. I haven't got there yet. Uh, that's good. Five minutes after we get there, we'll all know. <laughs> but that's a privilege the Lord is going to give Paul. And again, he deserves it. All right. Am I thoroughly confusing you all? Or are you still here? I'm thoroughly confusing you. <laughs> well, maybe a little clarity will come. Down. All right. So let me give a timeline here. Sometimes that's objectionable, but allow me. Let's begin here with Abraham. Just Abram for the moment since we're starting out with him. And we come up from Abram, finally, to the time of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. I realize I'm leaving out a tremendous amount of material, but this board's only so wide. And then you move from Pentecost over this at least now 2,000-year period, or nearly 2,000 years, I should, I should say, to the translation. And the church is caught up into His presence. Now, a uh, side note needs to be interjected here, and about this we'll have more to speak in the future to be sure, particularly since Daniel uh, is uh, full of the subject. After the translation of the church, we're going to enter into a period called in the Old Testament the time of desolation, Daniel's term, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, New Testament term, the tribulation, the great one. It is that period of trial that God is going to send on the earth, and Daniel teaches us that it is seven years long. 
Now, after the church is translated and we enter into this time of trial, it is with a view toward the sabbatical millennium or a 1,000-year period addressed in Revelation chapter 20. I realize that a lot of people look at that 1,000 years in a figurative manner and say it's just a long, undefined time period, but the burden of proof rests with them if they say that since the Scripture teaches it's a 1,000 years. Something that might be noted in that connection that God had promised to man six days of labor. Yes? Stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Six days shalt thou labor, the seventh shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the Lord. Remember now that all of these things are written in Old Testament time for our admonition and learning. The Apostle Peter said a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. So with the Lord, if a thousand years is as a day and a day is a thousand years, we have in the course of this period experienced six thousand years. And we are anticipating the sabbatical millennium. May I suggest to you that even on a natural calendar, we're getting very close to that period. Oh, I'm not setting dates. I just think it's interesting. Uh, well, I won't take time to deal with all of that right now. There'll be a cave again. So after the translation of the church then, God begins to restore Israel. That's the purpose of this tribulation period in order they might restore that adulterous wife put away. That's the message of the prophet Hosea again. And then, in order that we might come in finally to the jubilee age of earth and man's history, we have experienced under the law of Moses the year of release. That is the seventh year when the slave went free. We have not experienced the 50th year of jubilee when the land went free. The land is still under bondage. Do thorns still grow in your yard? Then the land's still under bondage. But we're looking for the time when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea that will not hurt nor destroy in all of His holy mountain. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The child will play on the cockatrice den. That's that jubilee millennium or sabbatical millennium when God brings <coughs> rest to the whole physical creation just as He has by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit given rest to those who have come into Jesus Christ. Are you with us now? But the outward man here is still perishing. We're anticipating the resurrection when we receive a body like unto the body of His glory. Are you still with me? All right, so let's say this. Here is the period then of the, the chosen people of God Israel between Abraham and Pentecost. After the day of Pentecost, those born into the body of Christ are neither Jew nor Gentile. Jew nor Greek as the King James puts it. K-E, but are one new man. Is that not right? No. Is that not right? What? Oh, there's an R in that. Greek. And no E on the end. That's what made it such a short word. I left the R out. You know, I knew I had the right number of letters. I just had the wrong one. There's neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile, but all are one in Christ Jesus. So out of the twain, Jew and Gentile, He's made one new man, Paul said, so making peace. So those who are born into the body of Christ in this time, if he's a Jew, he ceases to be a Jew. Now again, I understand why they use the term completed Jew. It is with a view toward reaching their own people. Paul said to the Jew, I became as a Jew. To the Greek, I became as a Greek. To those that were under law, as under law. To those that were not under law, as without 
as not under law, but not without law, but in a law to Jesus Christ. So in this period, we have the body of Christ. In this period, we have Israel. And now prior to that time, we have those who are neither the church nor Israel, but Gentiles. Now, Gentile is simply an English term to say nations. In both Old and New Testament, the word translated Gentile can be translated properly nations. Particularly the Old Testament, the word is goyim. Just, by the way, uh, a, an Israelite couldn't say Gentile dog fast enough to get those two words together. You know, make them sound like one word, Gentile dog. Same thing as far as he's concerned. Uh, in the New Testament, you find the term Greek, but it's intended to come cold water, name or something, lose reward. Thank you, but it's intended to describe all of the Gentile nations. All right, so we have Gentiles here, and we have, talking about the redeemed now, and we have Gentiles here. Now, God is redeeming out of these Gentiles, but not into the church. He is redeeming out of Israel during this period into the church, and they cease to be Israel. So we have Gentiles that are being redeemed, Israel as a nation that's being redeemed, which will be restored during this time of Jacob's trouble. And then we have the church of Jesus Christ that's called out during this period. Have I thoroughly confused you? No more. Okay, how can I help? Yes, Rob. Would it be incorrect to say that there are no Gentiles in that category? That's correct. No Gentiles here. I can spell Gentile. should have written that instead of Greek. In the body of Christ, there is neither Jew, Gentile, Barbarian, Scythian, Bond, Free, Male, nor Female, Paul said, but all are one in Christ. <coughs> so out of the twain is created one new man. That's this segment between Pentecost and the translation. That's what we are. The church which is his body. But his, here is Israel, the wife, redeemed as a nation, but presently put away from the Lord because of her adulterous attitudes toward Him. We will not have this man to reign over us. His blood be on us and on our children. And Israel was put away. But she's been put away in order that she might be restored again, the Apostle Paul said. So that Romans chapter 11, the natural branches which have been cut off are going to be grafted in again. And we Gentiles who are unnatural branches have been grafted into the natural root. As Paul puts it in Ephesians, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, but we have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. Anyway, I can help further. I realize this is several lessons in one. I want a panorama of where we're going. Maybe should have done well to have just gone there, but I think we need to see this overview. So that from Adam to Abraham then, those are Gentiles, not Israelites. But were they redeemed? Was Adam redeemed? Well, God made coat, skin, clothing. You know, the act of redemption. How about Enoch? He comes along in this time. He was a preacher of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jude quotes him. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, preached, saying, The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute vengeance upon the ungodly for their ungodly deeds and all their ungodly speeches which ungodly men have spoken against him. So Enoch, Noah, all of these men fall in this category. They are redeemed, but they are not Israelites, and they are not in the church of Jesus Christ. So how are they categorized as a part of redeemed Gentiles? What about Nebuchadnezzar? God marvelously redeemed him. We'll see that 
in the book of Daniel. What about Cyrus the Great, king of the Persians? God called him his servant, his shepherd. Marvelously redeemed. There are others that could be spoken to, Gentiles redeemed during that period, but they became proselyte Israelites, like Rahab the harlot, for example. But she became a proselyte Israelite, but these others did not. And so here are redeemed Gentiles, and here are redeemed Gentiles. When we come uh, to the period of the tribulation, the scripture says, first of all, that there were 144,000 Israelites, 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes of Israel that were sealed to the Lord. And then John said, chapter 7 of Revelation, then John said, I looked and behold a great multitude out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's always fourfold, world number. He said, who are these? He said, these are these that have come, those that have come out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, washed their robes and made them white and blood of the Lamb. They're redeemed Gentiles. So that when you come into the new heaven and the new earth, or should I stretch this out yet further? When, when you come into the new heaven and the new earth, when uh, uh, God descends to this earth and is our God and we shall be His people, after time has ceased at the close of this sabbatical millennium, then the Scripture teaches us that the Gentiles, the nations of them that are saved, are going to bring their glory and their honor into the holy city. Now, not saved nations. There's no such thing as a saved nation. It is rather the nations of them that are saved. So these redeemed Gentiles are going to constitute those peoples who will make up the nations of the world during that time. They'll always be in England. They really will. Not sure they understood that when they said that, but they'll always be in England. But the church of Jesus Christ will occupy one responsibility and position. Israel will occupy another responsibility and position, and the Gentiles yet a third. <coughs> yes, sir. Well, all are redeemed on the same basis. Acknowledging Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. There is no other avenue. We all understand that. The thing that makes the distinction is the period during which He's redeemed. So if He's redeemed now, He becomes a part of the church. Anybody who's redeemed during this time between Pentecost and the translation is a part of the church. But apart from that time, if he's a Jew, he remains a Jew and is a part of the economy of redeemed Israel. If he's a Gentile, he remains a Gentile and is a part of the economy of redeemed Gentiles. So that in terms of authority and reign, it is the Son on whose right hand is the church. Thank you. Yes. Which are ruling over the world. Yes. If you, if you suffer with Him, you'll reign with Him. That's right. uh, we shall also be glorified together, the Apostle Paul said. Now, with that is Israel, who is the head of the nations. Thou shalt no longer be the tail, but the head, God said. They started out the head because of their rebellion. They became the tail of the nations, and the nations have been wagging them pretty well whatever way they want. And God's just about to get fed up with that, and He's going to make them the head. Once again, the nations notwithstanding, Arafat notwithstanding, he'll be, they'll be made the head again. That's all there is to it. And the twelve disciples are going to sit on twelve thrones, Revelation 19, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Those twelve tribes of Israel, in turn, are going to be judging over the multitudes of the nations. 
So Deuteronomy tells us God divided the twelve tribes of I'm sorry, God divided the nations according to the twelve tribes of Israel. I can get it without uh, laboring over it. Chapter 4 and verse 19 of Deuteronomy. And lest thou lift up thine eyes into heaven when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, and all the hosts of heaven should be driven to worship them which uh, and serve them which the Lord thy God hath divided to all the nations. Ah, oh, I got the wrong verse. I'm so sorry. Yes. Case makes ways. Yeah, it's a good verse. It's not the right one. Uh, I, I was thinking it was in the 30s, but let me look at that real quick. I got a lot of good friends that don't always remember their address. Well, I'm not doing too well right now. Uh, 32 and 8. Deuteronomy 32, 8. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father and he will show thee the elders and they will tell thee when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the tribes of Israel. It was God's intention from the very outset that the nation of Israel should govern the nations of the world. They are the head. And the twelve apostles of the Lamb are each one going to be over one of those twelve tribes who will in turn govern the nations. So the Son is at authority, the church at His right hand, Israel in authority over the nations, and the Son governing the whole thing. Yes, sir? Uh, where do the apostles fit? Right here. Twelve apostles of the Lamb. When he says the twelve apostles of the Lamb, he's talking about the original twelve. They aren't the only apostles he had. The Apostle Paul does not figure in that number. Barnabas does not figure in that number. Timothy, who was an apostle, does not figure in that number. And so you go with it. These are the original twelve. Matthias, who was chosen in Acts 1 to replace uh, Judas. Well, we don't have to. There's a lot of them we never heard from. We never. Uh, yeah, I, thought, I thought they threw lots, but God picked Paul. Uh, God honored the lot. The lot was an Old Testament method of determining the mind of God, and the Holy Spirit had not been poured out. But if that needs to be emphasized, remember that Luke wrote the book of Acts. He wrote it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the Scripture says, Luke writing, and Peter stood up with the eleven. That had number Matthias. Now Luke is writing some years later. Now understand that Paul has a unique relationship among the apostles, one of which we just mentioned a moment ago. Paul is the revelator of the church. These twelve apostles have Israeli ties. And God is going to give them those thrones to govern the twelve tribes. But Paul's position is unique to the church. He was the revelator of the gospel to the Gentiles, as Peter was to the Jews. Yes? So Galatians chapter 2, Paul said that the Apostle Peter had received commission to preach the gospel to the circumcision, as I also, Paul said, had received commission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And you'll notice that both of them got in trouble when they reversed those roles. I'm reminded of a verse in Proverbs, as a bird that wandereth from his nest, so is the man that wanders from his place. When God has gifted a man in the body of Christ, I'm a funny path. 
when God has gifted a man in the body of Christ and he decides he doesn't like the place that God has given him and he wants to change his spiritual vocation, he's in for trouble. If God has called a man to pastor and he decides he wants to be an evangelist, he's going to fall flat on his face. Now, I'm not suggesting by that believers ought not to win souls. Believers ought to win souls. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about gift ministry as he's placed in the body of Christ. If God has gifted a man as an evangelist and he decides he wants to be a pastor, the church will die under his ministry. Because he'll be out winning souls and they're starving to death. It'd be like a woman begetting children and never feeding them. And we've got churches full of that kind of thing, living on a diet of, of Matthew and John. But God gave the Apostle Paul the ministry of structure to the church. That's why we have 14 of Paul's epistles and only three of Peter's, I'm sorry, two of Peter's and three of John's and one of Jude's and one of James. Because Paul was the revelator of the church of Jesus Christ. Unto me was this grace given, who am less than the least of all saints, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That was uniquely Paul's ministry. And since I've come this far, did you ever notice the parallel between Paul and Moses? Mm -hmm. Moses was the revelator of a dispensation. Yes? The dispensational law was given to the man Moses. Moses was called from his mother's womb, as Paul said he was. Uh, Moses was arrested by God by a divine revelation, as was Paul. Moses was taken up into the presence of the Lord to receive that revelation, as was Paul. Moses chose to himself be banished, cursed from the presence of God for the sake of the brethren, as was Paul. I could wish myself a curse from Christ for my brethren and my kinsmen according to flesh. You can go on and on with parallels between the two because both of them were revelators of dispensations, stewardships of God's redemption. Moses the law, the apostle Paul the grace of God in the church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3 gives much stress to that. Alright, do I need to say anything else about this? Well, all of that may not be coming together very well. I may to some of you sound like a heretic, but just chew on it, if you would, please. The unique thing about the Word of God is it's set down in marvelous order. <coughs> and the revelation of redemption is an orderly work that God is doing, and it falls together in a remarkable pattern. God, again, didn't wind this thing out and just go off and let it run down in any way that he would. How much time do we have left? Well, let me take you to Daniel. Now, let me uh, uh, beg your forgiveness tonight. It was my intention to have available to you some handouts which might have helped in the chapters that we're going to address to come. And I'll yet do that in the future. Today had some intervening events in it that made that uh, difficult. Uh, Daniel chapter 2. I'll tell you what's Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 2 begins to set out the outline for Gentile world powers. And we'll address that more fully in our next lesson.
God is giving Daniel the privilege of interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar as to this marvelous prophecy given to a Gentile pagan king about Gentile world power. Now, the important thing about that is to note that God does not give that kind of privilege to the mere casual believer. The individual who is going to hear that kind of truth from the Lord is going to be one that God has set out and prepared to that end. Daniel was a man, look at chapter 1, verse 8, who purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. God was preparing a man for a prepared message. Um, well, I won't meddle with that right now. So the whole purpose of the first chapter is to evidence the fact that there was something unique about what God was doing in the man Daniel. What for? Because God was going to give by Daniel a most unique revelation. Did you ever take note of the fact that there are very few people in the Word of God against whom no sin is ever levied? You ever stop thinking about that? You notice how embarrassingly honest God is about His people? And I find that most encouraging. You know, I, I like to realize that God is the Redeemer of sinners. Because if God redeemed righteous people, I'd be in deep trouble. So it encourages me to know that God takes sinful people to heaven. And so throughout the Scripture, God is ever careful to point out the failures of His people. By faith, Samson. Hebrews 11, the great Paul of fame of the people of God. Yes? Hello? Are you there? Yeah. Yes, isn't that right? Yeah. The great hall of faith. Seeing where it comes about, Hebrews 12, 1 and following. Seeing where it comes about, so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight. Run with patience. What cloud of witnesses? All those in chapter 11. By faith, Samson. You ever observe Samson? Oh, yeah. Interesting fellow. Hmm? Every time he went into a new town, he looked up the local harlot. No sin of any Old Testament saint is ever reiterated this side of the cross. The cross is the great eradicator of the <laughs> sin of the saints. That's why it's all good news. David, man after God's own heart. But would we let him be a member of our church today? <laughs> See, we'd like to convey the impression that our church is righteous people when God would like to convey the message that our church is full of sinful people who have found a righteous God who is by the blood of Christ willing to impute that righteousness to sinful people who will believe. A lot of good Oh, a lot is the classic. A lot is the classic. There's not one good thing said about Lot throughout the Old Testament Scripture. Not one good. As a matter of fact, quite the contrary. Hello? He had two daughters. He was ready to give to a mob to do with whatever they saw fit so that he could protect these two angels who didn't need his protection in the first place. Every time God and Abraham went one way, Lot and the devil went another way. Every time. But you come to Peter's second epistle, that just man vexed his righteous soul with the filthy conversation of the wicked, and God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. I think that's most remarkable. You see, it evidences to me once again that my position in righteousness before God is not my righteousness, 
but the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And by faith, God takes sinners to heaven. Should I say it again since I'm here? Good people go to hell. That's right. Bad people go to heaven. If you're not bad, you're no candidate for heaven. Jesus said, I'm not coming to the world to save to uh, uh, call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. The common people hurt you glad. Publicans and sinners is what he ate with. And so if I don't fall in that category, I take it. So Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's food, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Well, that shook up the prince of the eunuchs. So the prince of the eunuchs debate about that, and Daniel says, and I'm hasting on, and uh, you forgive us for time's sake. Uh, Daniel says, I'll make a deal with you. Test your servants. Verse 12. I beseech you, test us ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat. If you have pulse, it's vegetables. <coughs> and water to drink. And let our countenance be looked upon before thee and the countenance of the use that eat of the portion of the king's food as thou seest deal with thy servants. And so he consented to them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days their countenance appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the use who did eat of the portion of the king's food. And Melzar took away the portion of their food and the wine that they drank and gave them vegetables. Now that's not to suggest that vegetarians necessarily walk with God, you do understand. <laughs> but because there was not clean meat available, they chose rather than to eat meat. Wasn't anything wrong with Daniel eating meat, just had to be clean meat. They weren't accustomed to eating cormorants and rats, and so he was going to limit his food to vegetables. That was clean. Another thing I want to emphasize is the phrase, and at the end of ten days. The term ten days as a Hebrewism throughout the Old Testament. For example, uh, Laban said to Jacob, you have supplanted me now these ten times. Revelation chapter 2 to the church of Smyrna, you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life. There is a suggestion in this time element of what is about to come in this book. That God is about to prophesy the time of trial that is to come upon his people. And that that time of trial is going to be the experience of a people that God is purifying to himself, preserving to himself for a unique purpose. And so God is preparing the man in chapter 1 for the revelation that begins with chapter 2. I'm going to stop there. Anyone have any comments or questions? And I'll give you some handouts next week. Yes, ma'am. The number 10 is the number of responsibility. Ten commandments, for example. One is the number of divine unity. Uh, two is the number of witness. Three is the number of divine perfection. Four is the number of the world. So the four points of the compass, four seasons, etc. Five is the number of grace. Yes, ma'am. Do we have anywhere a list? I have a list in my briefcase. I'll bring that to you as well. Six is the number of man. Seven is the number of spiritual perfection. Eight is the number of new beginning, the octave. All right, you start again when you hit the eighth note. Uh, the eighth day Jesus came out of the grave. Nine is the number of divine completion. Ten is the number of responsibility. Eleven is the number of disorganization. One disciple missing, we go fishing. Twelve is the number of governmental perfection. So that's why we have twelve months in a year. It's another subject in itself. That's why we've got twelve 
uh, tribes in Israel and 12 apostles for the Lamb. Governmental perfection. 13 is rebellion. That shouldn't be hard to see. So you know. Anything else? Yes, sir. This isn't really part of what you're teaching tonight, but you asked the question. I've been wanting to ask you this anyway. You asked, are there any babies that are redeemed? Are there any babies that are not redeemed? You could go all night not ask that, brother. <laughs> <laughs> all right, this address is a different subject. I'm going to answer your question, but you don't wish to get into the subject tonight, all right? And they, uh, it may seem a hard thing, but consider it in the light of of uh, the revelation of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. That is that God has elected to Himself a people out of the earth. All those babies that fall in the category of the elect are redeemed, and all those who do not fall in the category of the elect are not redeemed. We look at babies as babies. God does not look at babies as babies. He looks at babies as people. We look at we look at them as sweet little cute bundles, remembering that those sweet little cute bundles bundles grow up into sinners, and that's what God is viewing. And so the answer to your question is yes, there are babies who are not, but it has to do with unconditional election. And that's why all of you are here tonight as believers because you have been unconditionally elected. I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but I'm talking about it, huh? I can feel it coming. <laughs> because you never made a right choice in your life where the Spirit was concerned. Paul said in Romans chapter 9 and verse 16, It is therefore not of him that willeth, or him that runneth, God that showeth mercy. I am not a believer because I will to be a believer. I'm not a believer because I pursued being a believer. I'm a believer because God showed mercy. You can ask the question why, and I don't have the answer. It's just to know you're good to know your love, that's all. In the words of the prophet Jeremiah, I've loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I called you. Like I said, it's another subject. Spend a little time in Romans 9 and see if it fits into your theology of that. I didn't write the book. Just give some attention. Anything else? I'll bring you a paper on that next week too. I'll let you just follow the list. Might be interesting. Okay. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 4.15 you have not known fathers, I have begotten this new gospel. Mm -hmm. He's calling himself father. Uh, why does he do that when Jesus says, He's addressing them in terms of who gave to them that seed through which they were born. He's pointing to his relationship to them as another believer. He's not looking at their uh, spiritual origin. God is their spiritual origin. We've come from Him, we go to Him. It's from glory to glory. But he's addressing their relationship in terms of responsibility in the body of Christ. There are those whom I fathered in the faith. Because I've preached to them a gospel, the gospel and I've seen them begotten in the faith. But in no sense am I, am I their father in the sense of origin. That's what Jesus was addressing. See what I'm saying? On the level of relationship in the body of Christ, He is their father. He said, you have many teachers, you've got one father. 
Every believer has a father in the faith. In the faith now. Every believer has a father in the faith with a little f. Uh, but all believers have one father who is their spiritual source of life. You were going to ask something else. Anything else? Well, bless your heart. What an introduction. <laughs> uh, well, chew on it, as I said. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for the marvel of the book that You've given, and we once again acknowledge that You have no <coughs> infallible interpreters of this book. And we thank You, Father, for an infallible book. And so we receive the Spirit of Truth who is said to guide us into all truth to give us understanding. Grant to us, we pray, Father, the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of you. And we thank you in that name which Jesus now possesses, which is above every name. Amen. Bless you all. Appreciate you being here.